everybody. We are going to be in Luke 19 uh, for our primary passage today. Luke 19, starting in verse 11. Um, and we are really, this is the, maybe there will be one more sermon in this series on the chronology of Jesus and his ministry. Um, but there's a good chance this is going to be the last one. Because what's next, this is, the, this is the last conversation Jesus has before he enters Jerusalem for Holy Week, Passion Week, the week leading up to his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. Um, we'll be sending out some talks on that this week, so look for that email. We're not going to do a sermon on Holy Week or Passion Week, um, so but keep that in mind, right? Because that's the very next event that happens in this context of Jesus' ministry. So have that in the back of your minds as you consider this conversation he has. Um, but if you will, please join me in reading uh, Luke eleven nineteen through 27. As they heard these things... So as they heard these things, what happened right before this? Well, if you saw the video we put out this past week, Zacchaeus, the conversation with Zacchaeus. He's entered the city of Jericho. He's gone into Zacchaeus' house, and he's had this conversation with Zacchaeus talking about, right, the, the leaders, they're grumbling, looking at a meeting with this tax collector, this sinner. And one of the last things he's talked about is, no, this is who I came to save. So these are the things that have set the kind of tableau for this next parable that Jesus says. As he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minus. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has the ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the holiness of who you are and your kindness and graciousness in giving us your word to study um, just Jesus. I, I mean, this is what this is all about. This is about Jesus. And I thank you that you have given us these testimonies so that we may see the person of Jesus and we may see who we are to be transformed into. Thank you that you have called us to a holy standard, a standard that apart from you, we cannot reach. But God, I thank you that you remind us that in you we have everything we need for life and godliness. So as we look at this passage, God, may this be a continuation of worship. May we continue to just offer ourselves before you, entirely submitted to you, 
Open our hearts, open our eyes to see, our ears to to hear, our minds to understand. We want to know you, Lord. And we ask that this time would draw us closer to your heart. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the first things he says, and I want to, I want to introduce it, but then we're going to skip past it because I want to come back to it a little later. One of the first things he says is, is he says, engage in business until I return. Okay, so keep that in mind. He's given these servants a task. He says, engage in business until I return. That's the very first thing that happens in this parable. But we're not going to talk about it first because I want to set uh, some of the other background before we look at engage in business until I return. So then the next thing, the next detail, remember how many times have I said every detail in Scripture is vital and is in there for a reason? I love this. It says, a nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. This is Jesus. Jesus went, goes to heaven to receive his kingdom. He's using this as a parable, right? Or, well, rather, he comes to earth to receive his kingdom. Uh, leading up, he's going to go back to heaven when he ascends. But so Jesus is the nobleman in this parable. And I love this detail. Jesus says, His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So Jesus is calling out the people who would claim to be a part of his kingdom, the people who would claim to be the citizens of the Messiah, are hating the Messiah. When the Messiah arrives, the Jews who would have claimed that we are the Messiah's kingdom, when the kingdom arrives, when Jesus arrives, they want nothing to do with it. So Jesus says they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And then I love, I love this little detail that Jesus puts in there next. What's the very next phrase out of Jesus' mouth? We hate this man. We don't want him to be king over us. And when he returned, having received his kingdom. Like, I, I love that Jesus puts, look, their opinion has absolutely no bearing on the kingship of this nobleman. And then later on, he's talking about the lazy servant, and the servant says, I was afraid of you because I knew my opinion is that you are a severe and harsh man. And the takeaway here, in this example of the citizens hate him, they don't want him to be king over us. And then Jesus says, when he returned, having received his kingdom. And then the servant says, my opinion of you is that you are a harsh and severe man who steals and robs. And the lesson here is quite simple, that our opinion and perception of Jesus has absolutely no bearing on the truth of Jesus. Right? What's two plus two? Neil, what's two? Oh, you just took a drink. I'm sorry. Mark, what's two plus two? Four. I think it's five. I think two plus two is five. And you know what? My own experiences, my own personal life experiences, they would, I, that's what makes me think that two plus two is five because I have experienced that two plus two is closer to five. Rick, what's two plus two? Why? Because my personal opinion on what 2 plus 2 is has no bearing on the truth of what 2 plus 2 is. I don't care that my experiences have dictated that 2 plus 2 is 5. The truth is 2 plus 2 is 4. The exact same thing is true of Jesus. His citizens said, we hate him, we don't want him to be king. That doesn't change the fact that Jesus is king. His servant says, look, I think you're a severe and harsh man who steals what's not yours. That has no bearing on who Jesus actually is. I mean, listen to this reminder, because we need to hear this and we need to understand this, that our opinion and perspective of Jesus has no actual bearing on the reality of who Jesus is. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And this is my favorite verse about Jesus. John 8.58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
I mean, that blows my mind. Like the logistics of that is just such an incredible, impactful statement from Jesus. Psalm 47, 6 through 7, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. We don't have to want Jesus to be king. The world doesn't have to want Jesus to be king for him to be king. We can disagree that Jesus is king. Well, in my own personal experience, I don't think Jesus is sovereign. All right, I mean, that's tragic, and I want to talk about that, but that has no bearing on the fact that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus is king. And so I want to remind us, I know we've talked about this so many times, but this is something that we need to know. This is why we're doing this series on the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Because if we're going to be the bride of Christ as we're called to be, we have to understand the bridegroom. So who is Jesus? Who have we seen him to be in this sermon series? Well, we've seen him to be Savior. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the bottom truth. That's what 2 plus 2 equals. No one comes to the Father except through me. The opinion of the citizens has no bearing on the truth of John 14, 6. Jesus is sanctifier, 1 Corinthians 1, 30. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 both show us that God's desire, God's purpose is our sanctification in Jesus, through Jesus. Because see, maybe for the Christian, if you're here, if you're here and you're not a believer, if you're joining us online and you're not a believer, maybe you are wrestling with the truth of Jesus as Savior. But maybe, maybe if we're here and we're believers, maybe if we're online and we're believers, we're listening to this and you're thinking, Sam, that's so obvious. Of course my opinion is that Jesus is Savior. Duh. Like, why are we spending time talking about, of course this is my opinion. Okay. Well, is your perspective that Jesus is sanctifier? Or has the church, the big C, big C church, big C Christian, has the church over the years, have we become deceived into thinking that conversion is the finish line? We just want people to get like saved. Once saved is the finish line in the Christian life. And once I'm saved, it's over. Things are done. No, friends, salvation is, that's the starting line. But you see, once we're saved, then the sanctification begins. Then the purpose of God to sanctify us in Jesus, to set us apart. We've looked at sanctification a couple times. In case you forgot the word sanctification, to make holy, to set apart, to conform to the person of Christ. This is God's will for us. This is God's purpose for us. 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification. Friends, I'm going to speak very bluntly right now. Like, very bluntly, I, I'm sorry if I offend you. If you're a believer and you think you've made it, you think you've reached the pinnacle of your fellowship with God, you are dead wrong and your opinion is dead wrong and has no bearing on the truth that you are called to sanctification. Sam, you don't understand. I've been a believer. I was saved when I was two. Before I could even speak, I professed faith. I've been in church, I've served in church, I'm 97, I have reached the pen. My perspective is that my growth is done. Your perspective is dead wrong and has no bearing on the actual truth. That's what Jesus says in this. 
Jesus is sanctifier. Jesus is healer. James 5, 14 through 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. In the prayer in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. In this sermon series, time and time again, we have looked at Jesus as healer. This is who Jesus is. And Jesus is coming King. Revelation 1-7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. I don't think Jesus is coming King, so I'm going to live... That's great, but that has no bearing on the fact that Jesus is coming King. And that needs to burden our hearts. Right? Why, why do I emphasize that? Because I don't say that flippantly. I have people who I love who have dismissed the truth that Jesus is coming King. I have people who I deeply care about who have dismissed this truth that Jesus is coming King. Why does that matter to you? Why does that matter to me? Because the truth is Jesus is coming King. And anyone who does not profess this, anyone who is not saved, is going to wind up in hell. So my perception, my friend's perception, someone I love, whose perception is that Jesus is not king, hell's not real, that has no bearing on the reality that hell is real. And if I claim to love them, then my heart should break for them that this truth is not a defining part of their life. So it's important that we know who Jesus is and recognize that just like the citizens who said, we don't want him to reign I love that Jesus says, we don't want him to reign. So when he came back as king, right? Like the citizen's opinion didn't change anything. This needs to burden us. This, I mean, guys, this, this needs to burden us. It absolutely must. And we're going to look at why in a little bit. But the next thing, in the next part of the conversation... So you've got this opening bit of the citizens have a perception of him, his servant has a perception of him. It doesn't change the reality of who he is. He comes back as king. He calls his servants, all believers, to him. He says, give me an account of what you've done with what I gave you. I entrusted you with a task. I equipped you for a task. He, get, he didn't say, hey, make me money out of nothing. He said, here's a mina. He had 10 servants, 10 minas. He gave one to each. He said, hey, here's a mina. I am giving you something. Now do something with it. And when he comes back as king, he says, okay, report time. What'd you do with what I gave you? And the first servant comes and he says, here's, here's my, you know, here's the mina you gave me. I turned it into 10. Oh, goodness. Sorry, Luke. Sorry, guys. This, this remote's for it to now. Okay, there we go. Your mina, your one mina has made 10 more. I turned one into 10. And then the next guy says, I turned one into five. And how's the master respond? I mean, this blew my mind. Like the first time I really considered this verse, this, was, this is crazy. See, a mina was, I won't get too into the detail, like a mina was 1 60th of a talent, a talent was a year's. So a mina, you're looking at a mina is about three days wage, somewhere in that range, depending on the conversion charts. So I gave you, or I'm sorry, not three days, three weeks. So I gave you three weeks salary. You turn that into 30 weeks salary. That's impressive, right? I gave you 50 bucks, you turned it into 5,000. That, whoa, that, you're doing well, man. Okay, cool. 
you're good at this. The response is, all right, so now you have the authority over 10 cities. This is, hey, I gave you 50, you turned it into 5,000. Sweet, here's 10 billion. What? Right, like, I, I have to imagine the king's accountant at this point is like, whoa, 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 can we talk about this? Like, that's a big leap. I trusted him with 50 bucks, and now you're saying I'm going to give him 10 cities? See, the master's response so drastically outweighs what the servant is really due. The servant's, the servant's efforts pale in comparison to the master's generosity. I mean, think about it. Think of our life, our sacrifices. I know many of you have sacrificed in the name of Jesus. I know many of you pour yourself out in effort for the name of Jesus. I know people in this room have seen the fruit of pouring themselves out for Jesus. So on one side, consider all we do, all that the servant does for the master. God, you gave me salvation. You gave me the gift of Jesus. You filled me with your Holy Spirit. Look what I have turned it into. And the scale tips a little bit in our favor. And you're like, wow, that's impressive. Wow, that's a hardworking servant. He did a lot with that. And then what falls down on the other side? Eternal fellowship with God. I mean, that is such, don't miss that detail in this parable. Don't miss that detail that the servant turned one into ten and the master responded with ten cities. Don't miss that. The absolute love and abundance that God has and is his to give out. Because my best efforts, I mean, my best efforts, my best fruit pale in comparison to eternal fellowship with God. What a, what a reward he has poured out on us. This isn't a, well, I kind of earned it. This is a, God, are you kidding me? That generosity is, I can't comprehend that. So don't miss that detail of the heart of the master for his servants. So whatever he's asking you to do in life, before the enemy tries to convince you that that's just too much or that's just too hard, or because of how hard that is, now you've kind of earned the right to coast a little bit. Right? In your 30s, you were able to personally bring five people to Christ. In your 40s, you brought ten more. So, man, by the time you hit 50s, you have earned the right to coast. Look at the fruit you had in the first 10 years, the first 20 years. So now at this point in your life, you have earned the right to, like, you've earned the reward on the other side. No. Guys, our efforts will never equal the generosity of the Father. Our efforts will never equal the joy and the beauty of heaven, of eternal fellowship with God. Don't miss this detail in the parable. But then let's back up a little bit, or rather move forward a little bit. Back up to what I said at the beginning, engage in business until I come. The king says, engage in business until I come to his servants. And then he comes back, and he talks to his servants who have engaged in business, except for one. Except for one who was entrusted with a mina, but because of his flawed perception, he reveals that he was never really a servant of the master because he didn't know the master. See, his perception was, you are a harsh and severe man. You're a thief, right? Because of that, I was afraid of you. So I did nothing with what you gave me. 
What do we see at the start of that? He gave all his servants the same thing. He gave all of his servants a task. Here's a mina. Handle the business. Engage in business until I return. The results may be different. One servant turned a mina into ten, one turned it into five. So the results may certainly be different. The roles may certainly be different. Clearly those two servants didn't do the exact same thing because the results were different, right? Clearly they didn't, you know, if it was like, hey, this servant took his one and turned it into ten by doing A, B, and C. Okay, well, servant two did something different. So the specific roles, the specific tasks, or the specific roles with the task may look different. The results may be different, but make no mistake, the task is the same for all believers. Naturally, the question then is, all right, well, what's the task? Right? God is good. God doesn't give us a task and then not follow up with it. He doesn't say, hey, you have to figure out what you're supposed to do. This business I want you to engage in until I return, good luck. I hope you can figure it out. No, he says, engage in business until I return. Here it is. So then my natural question is, okay, so then what is the business that Jesus has given me to engage in, given all of you to engage in? I mean, if you're a believer, Jesus has given you business to engage in. What is that? Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What word and phrases appeared over and over again in those four passages? The end of the earth, all people, witness, proclaim, make disciples. This is what has been given to the church. Big C, capital church, whom believers are all a part of. This is the task that Jesus has given. You are not exempt from that task. If you have spent, if you're 99 and you've spent the first 98 years thinking that I am exempt from this task, I have great news. You get to start today. This is the task that has been assigned to the church to proclaim Jesus to all people, to make disciples of all nations. And yes, I pointed out, the roles and the results may look different. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 8. This is one of my favorite passages. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants from whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. As the Lord assigned to each. I planted, task one. Apollos watered, task two. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. The tasks may be different. Not all of you are going to stand up here on a Sunday morning and preach. Not all of you are going to serve on the elder board. Not all of you are going to serve as deacons or serve in the kids' wing or serve on the security team or help with meals or things like that or serve as trustees. Tasks may be different, but the task is the same. Proclaim the gospel, make disciples. Ephesians 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. He gave the leadership of the church to the church. Ephesians is talking about the church, Jesus' bride, Jesus' body, the church. And he says, he gave the leadership to the church. Why? Anybody know the next two words? To equip. He gave the leadership to the church to equip. Who? Who is getting equipped? To equip the saints, the body of the church. He gave the leadership of the church to the body of the church to equip them. Well, for what? What is the body of the church being equipped for? To do the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Not all of you are going to stand up here and preach. Why? Because that wasn't the specific role assigned to you as part of the church. But guess what? As part of the church, you have been assigned the task of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. And if the church sits back and says, that's the job of the pastors, that's the job of the elders, that's the job of the staff, they're missing the point. If leadership, now let's put it on us, if leadership, if I as pastor, if I and the elders as leaders, the staff, if we say it's all on us, it's all on us, it's all about us, one, that's crazy egotistical. Two, that's crazy ludicrous because we're going to burn ourselves out and we can't possibly shoulder the burden. We have been given to equip the body for the work of the ministry. So if you've spent your whole life sitting in church thinking that that's somebody else's responsibility to proclaim the gospel, again, I say this bluntly and I, maybe you need your toes stepped on, you're dead wrong. If you think it's somebody else's job to make disciples, it's somebody else's job to proclaim the gospel, you're wrong. It's the task that's been given the church. Matthew 13, 8. Okay, yeah, but Sam, I'm not as good at it. Right? You look at somebody like Billy Graham. Thousands are coming to be saved, right? Like, I'm not as good as that. I can't possibly have the same results as somebody else. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to be faithful to the task that was given you, the role that God has placed you in, with the overarching idea and target of proclaiming the gospel. Matthew 13, 8, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. The seeds on good soil produced grain. They produced fruit. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. The results are different. Some of you might have the joy of seeing, of being there when 100 people, when 20 people, when even just one person. I mean, it is, it is a thrill when even just one person professes Jesus as Savior and you get to be there for that. Right? But the person who planted that first seed had no less of an important part to play in God growing the gospel in this person's heart. Apollos planted, I watered. God gave the growth. See, it's not about us. We can't determine the end results. We can't dictate the end results. But we have been called to be faithful with what the Master has entrusted to us. With the mina that we have been given, we have called to be faithful in how we steward that. To engage in the Master's business with what He has given us. He has given us the gospel. He has trusted us with this. Your responsibility is to be faithful. To proclaim to make disciples. And it's a joy. I mean, what other task 
has the eternal consequences of proclaiming the gospel? What other goal has the same blessing? I mean, what's better than seeing someone come to Christ? Hey, you were destined for hell, and now we're going to be in eternal fellowship with God. What's better than that? What work would you rather engage in? I, I, I really, I, I uh, you'll learn a little bit. Like, there's a part of me, you know how sometimes we talk about like a mental disconnect, like that just doesn't make sense to me? I, I will be very honest right here. I really struggle to understand why people don't want to do this. Like, I, I, I do. Like, I'm just, I'm being honest. And if this is you, if you don't want to do this, come talk to me and we'll puzzle through it together. But my thought process is, okay, if I really understand who I was apart from Jesus, if I really understand that I was destined for hell, and that anyone apart from Jesus is going to wind up in hell, I mean, if I, if I believe that and understand that, and then I know how that changes, what, why, why would I not want to share that? Why, why would I not want to engage in that work? Hey, I have the single most life-transforming truth for you, but I'm going to let somebody else do it? Like, if I had a billion dollars to just bless people with, right? Like, somebody was like, hey, go through Walmart and everything on layaway, just take that debt for people. Like, go through your church. Anybody who has a house payment, pay it off. Do you know how much fun that would be? Like, I mean, really think about it. Who would have fun if you were able to go to all your friends and family members and say, hey, I wiped out all your debt? All the debt you have. You owe, you owe 60000 it's gone. I took care of it. Hey, you owe three hundred thousand. You've got seven credit cards. Like I, it's gone. How much? Who would have fun doing that? Really? Okay. Well, that's sad. Because there's one of two things that just happened to that question. Either you think I'm not serious when I ask you questions, in which case you've missed like forty thousand times I've said I'm serious when I ask you questions, or you really wouldn't enjoy doing that for someone. And yeah, it's funny when we talk about wiping out someone's debt. Ha ha, what a clever illustration. How many people would have fun sharing the gospel with someone and seeing them come to Christ? That's what you have. That's the task that has been entrusted to you. Why would you not engage in it? I mean, really, what, what else would you rather do with your time? Believers, you got to be serious to ask yourself that question. And then he gives a specific detail, and this is what I want to spend the last bit on. Acts 1.8. Remember when I said that our specific roles may be different with the overarching task? Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, okay, Sam, that's fantastic, but that verse doesn't really fully apply to me. Like, the first part, you'll be my witnesses, but then the rest of the detail, that's kind of, you know, just kind of, like, meaningless because I don't live near Judea or Samaria or the end of the earth. Right, but if I believe the Bible applies to my life, then I look at this verse and I say, okay, then where, where do we go with this verse? Power to be witnesses. Is there a possible understanding of Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, the end of the earth? And I think there is. Because let's, let's consider the context. Who would have been Jerusalem for these people that Jesus is speaking to? He's speaking to them in Jerusalem. They are in Jerusalem. And he's saying, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem. 
He's speaking to Jews in a city of Jews, people who are in very close proximity to them and like them. So we are to be Jesus' witness to the people who are very near to us, geographically, and like us. So I live on Forest Street. My neighbor lives on Forest Street. We are near geographically. It's a young couple with one child. We're a young couple about to have our first child. We live on the same street, so we're probably in comparable economic brackets. So my street is my Jerusalem. Your neighborhood is your Jerusalem. They're in close proximity to you. You can live next to each other, so you're probably in about the same economic bracket. And you both live in central Ohio, right? So you're probably, I mean, these are people who are most likely pretty like you. They're pretty similar to you because of these characteristics. Or how about your work, right? You work, you work at company A with other people who work at company A. So they're near you and they're employed in the same field as you and you've got lunch break at the same time. So you have people who are near you who are like you. Be witnesses in your Jerusalem. What was Judea? Judea was the surrounding area around Jerusalem, made up of Jewish people, it was the Jewish kingdom. So now you have people who are still like you, but maybe not geographically near you. Jesus says, that's who you're going to be my witnesses to. You're going to be my witnesses to the people who have similarities with you, but don't live physically near you. Anybody have a family member who doesn't live in this county? Anybody have a friend who doesn't live in this county? Anybody have acquaintances who doesn't live in this county? I mean, like, maybe they don't live in the same town as you. Maybe you want to shrink your Judea a little bit. But be witnesses to the people. But guess what? If I have a family member who doesn't live in this county, they're like me. Why? Because we share blood. We share DNA. I don't understand how science works. I don't know if we actually share DNA. But I think that's right. Phil, is that right? Kind of? Close enough. Close enough. Phil understands my scientific capacity. Kind of stops at close enough. Right? I have family members who don't live in Richland County. They are physically not near me, but they are like me. That is my Judea. If you have family members, if you have friends, if you know people who don't live in the same town as you, but you have that relationship, that is your Judea. What about Samaria? Samaria was a little bit closer to Jerusalem than the farthest reaches of Judea's kingdom. But Samaria would have been full of Samaritans. In the sermon series, we've looked at the vast differences between Samaritans and Jews and how much they disliked each other and how polarizing that relationship was. So a Samaritan would have said, I have nothing in common with a Jewish person. This person is not like me in any way, but they're physically near to them. Jesus says, go be witnesses to them. So maybe you live in this town, you live in Lexington, you live in Mansfield, you live in Ontario, you live in Shelby, and there are people in the town right next to you who you don't live, or you, you're not like them, right? I work in, I work in uh, physical production, right? Like I, I physically build things. They work in accounting. Like our jobs aren't the same. We live in very different neighborhoods. Our kids aren't on the same team. I really don't have anything in common with them. But they're, they're kind of close to where I live. Okay, that's your Samaria. That's who you're to go be witnesses to. And then the end of the earth, that's pretty simple, right? The end of the earth. This is the people who aren't near you. They're not like you. That's who you're to be witnesses to. This is Haiti, this is Miami, this is Canada, this is Thailand, this is Africa. I mean, wherever you want this to be, that's your end of the earth. Now, quick question. Did Jesus say, 
or or and in that list? Come on, somebody. We just went over this. I'm serious when I ask questions. Did you say or or and? And. We don't pick and choose. All right, Jesus. Well, I'll be a witness for you in Jerusalem, but not Judea, not Samaria, not the ends of the earth. You know what? Jerusalem, I feel like Jerusalem's really saturated, right? Like Richland County's got a ton of churches. Jerusalem's saturated, so I'm going to pick Samaria. And I'll pick Morrow County. Okay, Morrow County will be my Samaria. And I'll neglect Jerusalem. I'll neglect Judea. I'll neglect the ends of the earth. Nope. Jesus didn't say or. Jesus said, here's your task. Hey, church, here's your task. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the people near you and like you. And be my witnesses in Judea, the people not near you but like you. And be my witnesses in Samaria, the people near you but not like you. Oh, and in case that wasn't comprehensive enough, be my witnesses in the end. Like, I love, I love Jesus for how he uses his language. Because he removes our excuses before we can make them. Because let's be honest, right? We're, we're weak. Apart from Jesus, we're weak. We're fallen. So I listen to that, and I'm like, okay, yep, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, check, good. I can stop there. My flesh is like, yeah, yeah, stop there. That's easy. And then Jesus says, oh, and the ends of the earth. Like, good, you saturated Jerusalem? And this goes back to your work is never done. This goes back to the task is not finished until the master returns. Oh, you saturated Jerusalem? Every single person in Richland County believes in Jesus? Okay, we'll now hit Judea. Oh, you saturated Ohio? You hit your Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria? I mean, every single person in Ohio believes in Jesus. Wow, we're done. Nope. Let's hit Indiana. Let's hit New York. Let's hit PA. Let's hit West Virginia. Okay, cool. You got the U.S. taken care of? Man, surely you're done. Nope. Let's hit the rest of North America. Let's hit Central America. Oh, your continent's done? All right, sweet. Go see if there's anybody in Antarctica and make sure that they hear the gospel. I mean, this is the task that Jesus has given the church. This is the task that Jesus has given you. And maybe, maybe there's still that small, stubborn part of us that thinks, yeah, that's, that's the church's job. But by that, I mean the pastors and the elders and the people who are good at this and the people who like this. Or maybe you're even like, okay, it's not just the pastor's job, right? Maybe I'm sitting in this row. I mean, maybe you're sitting in your seat and you're thinking, yeah, this applies to everyone but me. Because that's what the flesh parts of us wants to do. The flesh part of us wants to listen to this and think of all the ways it doesn't apply to us so that we don't have to change. Why is this so important? I mean, why am I so burdened by the fact, when I say everyone, I literally mean every single one of you, right? I could go through this by name and say, I am burdened with you taking this seriously as an individual. Why does this matter? You know how people engage with God? So this is, uh, if you know the name Tom Rainer, Tom Rainer has made a career out of studying church. And he studies, and it's not, it's not the clearest picture, I apologize, I'll read it out for you guys. But Tom Rainer has made a career out of studying church and studying Christian behavior. And he asked a simple question recently, he said, who reaches who? How are people influenced to receive Jesus and engage in church? And up at the top, you have the pastor and the church staff. Well, surely that's got to be the highest, right? That's zero to three percent. People who have received Jesus and engaged with the church... At max, 3% of those people said it was because of a pastor or a church staff member. 
Well, maybe it was visitation, right? Like maybe I stopped by as a stranger and that convinced me to stay. That's even less. That's a half to 1%. Well, maybe it was a small group. I got invited to small groups. Guys, I love small group ministry. I believe strongly in small group ministry. That's 4 to 6%. Maybe it was church programs, right? That's why you need more programs. We should have three things on every night of the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. There should be multiple programs that people can come to. That's how people receive Jesus. That's 2 to 4%. Well, maybe it was giving, the generosity, right? When the, church, when the church physically helped a stranger, that convinced them to engage and receive Jesus. That's 1% to 3%. Well, maybe it was a big event. Maybe it was a concert. Maybe you brought in a speaker. Again, that's half to 1%. You know how people, you know how people are reached for Jesus? By friends, relatives, and associates, 75 to 90%. 75 to 90 percent of people say that their relationship with the church, their relationship with Jesus, began because of a personal relationship, because of a family member, a friend, or an associate. What does that sound like? Family member, friend, associate. That sounds like you're Jerusalem. That sounds like you're Judea. That sounds like you're Samaria. That's how people are reached for Jesus. You want to see, who wants to see God's kingdom grow? All right. You remember that you just raised your hand. What are you doing about it? You want to see God's kingdom grow? Awesome. So do I. What are you doing about it? You have been given a mina. The master, the nobleman, the king. Jesus has given you a mina. He's coming back. He is going to say to you, hey, I gave you this. I trusted you with this. I asked you to engage in my business until I return. And when I return, what's he say? He says, bring my servants to me so that I may receive a report. You want to see God's kingdom grow? Forget our little kingdom. Forget, forget any of the individual kingdoms. This isn't about us, right? Now, I believe in the local church. I believe 100% in the centrality of the local church in the life of a believer. How's the, how's the Bible described? As a body. So saying I'm a Christian without belonging to a local body is like saying I'm a body part without a body. Right? Okay, well, that might technically be true for a little bit, but if I cut my pinky off, I mean, if I just right now chop my pinky off, left it out in the parking lot, right? Today, yeah, that's still doing well. Tomorrow, not so much. A week from now, not so much. And sooner or later, at some point, this is no longer could be described as a body part because it's going to die. And it's going to disintegrate. And it's going to break down. And you couldn't say, oh yeah, my body part is just hanging out over there in the parking lot for three years. So I believe in the local church, the necessity of the local church, the place of the local church and the body of the believer. But it's not about our one body. It's about God's kingdom. This is what we've been entrusted with. We can't handle the growth. We can plant. We can water. We can do some weeding. We can engage with people. We can point them to Jesus. We can proclaim the gospel in our Judea, our Samaria, our Jerusalem. This is what the king has assigned to us. And if we don't take that seriously... Oh, 
You want to see the world change? Who wants to see the current state of things change? I know I do. You know what's going to change things? Jesus. I don't care who president is. I don't care who the governor. I mean, I do, right? Like, but it, president doesn't matter. The governor doesn't matter. You expect laws to transform people's hearts? You expect legislation to bring about real, lasting life change? It's not going to happen. You want to see the world change? The only answer is Jesus. What are we doing about it? This is the parable of the ten servants. Which servant are you going to be when the master returns? So the assignment this week is simple and straightforward. I want you to read Acts 8, 26 through 40. A fantastic story in Acts. Acts 8, 26 through 40. And then I want you to physically, right? If you're someone, if you're a visual person especially, even if you're not, I encourage you to do this. I want you to identify your Jerusalem and Samaria. We'll start with two of the four. All right, on your phone, on a whiteboard, maybe you've got a family whiteboard in the kitchen or in the dining room, right? Maybe you've got a calendar, a day planner that you use every day. I want you to write down somewhere where you will see it, my Jerusalem, I'm, I'm literally telling you this, I want you to write down, my Jerusalem is Forest Street. My Jerusalem is whatever neighborhood name you live in. My Jerusalem is Ohio Health. My Jerusalem, right? I want you to identify your Jerusalem. The people who are near you and like you. So you already have something in common with them. Hey, our kids are on the same sports team. Hey, we work at the same job. Like, you don't need icebreakers. You have something in common with these people. That's your Jerusalem. Then I want you to identify your Samaria. Still the people near you. So you don't have to travel. I'm not asking you to get in your car and drive to Detroit or anything like that. Right? To drive to Indianapolis. No, what's your Samaria? What are the people near you but not like you? My Samaria is fill in the blank. And then the question I want you asking yourself is, okay, then what am I doing to bring the good news of Jesus to these people? What am I doing to proclaim the gospel? Mark 16, 15, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. What am I doing to proclaim the gospel to my Jerusalem and my Samaria? And the prayer is simple, Lord, open doors. Give me the wisdom to recognize open doors. Give me the courage to step through them. And maybe our prayer needs to back up. Maybe we need to go before God and be honest. Lord, my heart's not burdened for this. It really isn't. I mean, maybe we really need to be painfully honest. Maybe the American church, and I'm talking about everyone, I'm not singling anyone out. Maybe the American church needs to come to a place where we say, yeah, you know what? We really haven't taken this seriously. Maybe that's where we are as a church. So maybe the prayer needs to be, God, teach us to take us seriously. I mean, Lord, would you burden my heart for the lost people in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria? Because maybe that's where we need to begin. Because if that component is missing, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you look at the lost people around you and you're like, eh, hope somebody talks to them. It's not going to be me but I hope somebody does. If that's where the church is, then don't expect anything to change. But I believe God can transform hearts, including our own. I believe God equips us. I believe the Holy Spirit leads us. So because of that, I believe that this could be the body 
that makes a lasting difference on Richland County. Not because of us, but because of God, because of the King, because of the Master who has given us this task. Join me in prayer.